Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a podcast channel on our network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and I'm pleased today, coming to you from San Diego, to have Professor Yuzhi Hutechka from uh, the Czech Republic. He is in Olomouc joining us today. Welcome to our podcast, Yoshi, and thanks for coming. Uh, hello, Stephen. Uh, thanks a lot for the invitation. So today we'll be talking with Yoshi about his new book, which is called Men Under Fire, Motivation, Morale, and Masculinity Among Czech Soldiers of the Great War, 1914 to 1918, just out with Bergon Books 2020. A little bit about Professor Hutechka. He is an associate professor at the University of History at the University of Hradec Králové in the Czech Republic. He studied history at the Palacki University in Olomouc, and his early research focused on the U.S. Civil War. He is a military historian. His current work is on military and gender history of the First World War, and he's published a number of scholarly articles, I'd add in multiple languages, on the topic of the experience of Czech-speaking soldiers in the Austro-Hungarian army. So this book, which we'll talk about today, Men Under Fire, is a significantly expanded version of his Czech original, which was published in 2016. So to begin my interrogation, I want to ask you, as a historian, Yerzy, of motivation, what motivated you intellectually and personally to write this book? Uh, well, it, it may be a long story, but try, I try to you know sh- uh, sort of tone it down in length. But uh, it, actually, I I started my career as a uh, as a military historian, so I was I was always interested in military history. But uh, basically, from the very beginning, I sort of felt that military history, the way it's usually done, it's not doing the 
uh, it's uh, sort of not reflecting what I'm reading in many of the sources. It's not reflecting the reality of uh, of uh, the historical phase of warfare. So I uh, always ended up trying to understand either the structural context of war or the psychological uh, context of how it affects the participants, their behavior and their attitudes, and how these affect uh, the how they shape basically the military performance itself. So that's the eternal question of all military historians, of course. And so I uh, sort of got to uh, military history some this very specific way as a student because my master thesis one on was on uh, historical memory of uh, of US of the US Civil War. I wrote my master thesis on uh, Robert E. Lee and his um, historiographical image in uh, US historical writing. And then I got even more into uh, US Civil War. What where actually some, some of my work concerned the topics of modernity of that conflict and plenty of work uh, has already been done before on uh, the gender aspects of warfare in 19th century. So it sort of got connected and I sort of realized that, uh, well, it's quite uh, quite difficult. And it, I, it sort of came to me over a few years that gender is actually something that's really connected to to warfare and uh, it, not just in terms of history of uh, different groups of people, women, men, and uh, like just group history basically, but in terms of concepts of uh, behavior that are really influencing the way people think, the way people understand uh, the events. So I ended up thinking about, well, this is something that's actually never been done in context of uh, Central European history, never been done in context of uh, Czech history. And I ended up sort of thinking, well, let's try this approach on something that really interests me from the very beginning, which is the Czech uh, or the history of Bohemia and Moravia uh, during the First World War. And because I sort of realized that there's plenty of primary sources that are either not really uh, represented in historical writing, not very used by other historians, and generally the discussion, the whole discussion about uh, uh, soldiers from Bohemia and Moravia uh, participating in the First World War is always ends up being. Uh, uh sort of just pushed into the box of uh, debating the loyalty of Czechs and yeah the, that's right you know and uh, uh the emergence of Czechoslovak legion and uh, basically it's all viewed from uh with the theological uh, uh, optics of uh, what's gonna happen so it's always viewed as it's all uh, yeah, and gonna end up in creation of Czechoslovakia. It's all gonna end up with everybody being happy, not being uh, the subject of uh, the, of Austria of the Austrian Emperor. So, uh, 
I, I sort of thought that this really deserves a, a fresh, fresh look. And yeah. then, and then, uh, because the fresh look was all sort of the the other idea was uh, let's try gender uh, as a uh, as a way to and a way to analyze that experience of. Uh, I started basically sort of out of convenience with Czech soldiers, Czech-speaking Czech soldiers of the Austro-Hungarian army. I ended up with them. So I sort of undermined the, the concept a little bit because that it's a, it's a really specific group. But on the, on the other hand, I thought that on, on one level, uh, you may, I may end up uh, actually analyzing the general concepts of uh, masculinity and gender influencing uh, men uh, in combat in one war but on the more specific level I may end up actually helping to further the discussion about Czech soldiers loyalty and their position in the whole uh, yeah conflict 1914-1918 so that, that was my reasoning behind actually starting with that research starting with you know using uh gender history as a sort of new way of trying to understand what modern warfare actually does to people right. and how they react to it and then specifically if there's something that for Czech soldiers was different than could possibly be for for, for someone else in that or that yeah. period Let, let's let's talk about that Yerji, a little bit because I I mean I as someone who also, um, writes about masculinity studies and uses gender as, a, as an intersectional category. I, I like how you incorporate the work of people like Joan Scott and Michael Kimmel as, as classics. Um, but then you're introducing something which our, our readers, I think, will be intensely curious about, and that's the stereotypes that persist even in the academic literature and, and what you would call Czech historiography. So what, I mean, as you're doing the research through your sources and especially the sample of diaries and memoirs, what, what image do you say is the conventional or maybe the stereotypical image of, of Czech manliness? How, and how does that persist? Oh, well, the uh, first thing that I may add to it is not, I'm not really, really sure if there's something that would be specifically Czech about that uh, because that would be more like Central European uh, right. early 20th century concepts of masculinity at play and uh, my I would say that uh, probably it was a little there was a little different between you know uh, the way Czech speakers understood their masculinity and German speakers for example in Bohemia and Moravia of course there could be some differences and uh, they, they mostly related to their position, sort of political position in in case they were actually aware of being Czech or being German because there's this whole debate uh, on uh, national indifference uh, in early 20th century Austria, Hungary. Uh, but generally speaking, everybody who got to you know high school level of education more or less in, uh, ended up uh, identifying themselves with either Czech or German uh, national group, uh, or identifying themselves with some other some other sort type of identity, like you know class or something. 
But for all of them, masculinity was some sort of unifying concept. So the, the general concept would be that masculinity is something that's tightly connected to uh, uh, social uh, class statues, uh, to economic uh, uh, economic success in uh, early 20th century society. So someone uh, full full manhood could be basically attained through either uh, economic uh, position in society or sort of symbolic position based on education mm. and uh, sort of uh, sometimes if that would be in terms of, you know, for example, national community, that person didn't need necessarily to be, you know, really rich or <laughs> being, being, aware, right. exactly. being, being able to uh, fulfill the other, the, the, the general mainstream notions of masculinity, like being a provider for a family and so on, because they could sort of supply that for, by being, you know, very, uh, very active and, uh, 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 really participating in the national movement, for example. So, uh, they could sort of be shorthanded in, in one, one venue of masculinity, but being very active in the other one, it sort of made up, made up for that loss. But, uh, still it was very much, uh, about, uh, being in control, being in, in a position of power, being in a position where a man could basically uh, be the the active and deciding actors in their own lives and potentially in other men's lives, and especially, of course, in, in the lives of uh, their dependents, meaning women and children when they started right. a family. So uh, it all, all sort of, in, in the ma- most mainstream version would be uh, late twenties, starting a family and, uh, and getting a good job or starting a business. And that good job could be lots of things depending on your class position and class statues. And then basically that, that was it. And then the rest of, uh, the rest of the chronology of masculinity would be about improving or keeping that social, social statues throughout their lives. And of course, when the war came in 1914, uh, this is something that they came into question, not just because of all the upheavals of the conflict itself. Mm-hmm. But, and that's one of my points that actually these guys were suddenly confronted with uh, new, new, yeah, yeah. new hierarchy of masculinity. Suddenly they had to do something else. And for some, it was, uh, it was good news because they could right. sort of short shift Hold the whole process. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, Yoshi, I'm really intrigued by how you begin this in your book because you have six chapters, and really, I, I think um, for anybody who who is in Assis and um, is privy to the the conversation that that took place between Rock Stergar and and Cindy Passes and and Emily Jayeli and Nancy Wingfield, they should listen to that because I, I'm really intrigued by how you apply the framework of symbolic capital. You have terms like patriarchal dividend. In the beginning, you, you have the framework of, of John Lynn, um, and you talk about conscription and, and how men get into the Habsburg army in 1914 who, who happened to be Czech speakers. So how, how do you develop that, let's say, from your 
beginning chapter, the, the story of motivation, what you call the tournament of manliness. Um, it's a great title. <laughs> um, through through the early through the early years, in order to cover the, this this kind of really broad narrative up to the end of the war. Yeah, well, the, the whole when I was thinking about how to actually approach this topic, I, I ended up with actually taking inspiration from John Lynn's uh, structure of military motivation. He, he did it for uh, for the French Revolutionary Armies in the late 1790s. And it sort of helped me to figure out how to uh, do this uh, because uh, there was plenty of other options to do this really chronologically to uh, follow the, some events, some, some specific moments in the history of the First World War uh, because... I got this feeling from reading the primary sources that uh, uh, basically always the same story. When, whenever it starts, sometimes there's some parts of that story missing. Sometimes there's other parts of that story that's actually not covered in the book because, for example, one of the things that probably should have been there but didn't have time or space to do that would be whatever happens in case of you know, capture, becoming a POW, yeah. or POW, the, 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 mass, the huge question of desertion, of course, for Czech-speaking Czech soldiers. But uh, I sort of ended up just narrowing the whole thing down into this more most the, the most universal experience that everyone had because everyone, all these men were conscripted at some point, uh, mm-hmm. 1914 or later, uh, all of them had to spend some time in the army, and all of them uh, had to cope with, this, with, uh, with the army life in wartime. And all of them sort of uh, headed towards uh, uh, combat combat situation, uh, yeah, or combat situations in case they were uh, experienced combat more than once, which most of them actually did, uh, as, right. as for my sample. So. It, for me, all, it all starts starts with the moment they are conscripted, and that's the that's the tournament that you mentioned. But it's, yeah. it really felt like a tournament, but some basically categories of masculinity being you know reshuffled, and suddenly the military, uh, uh, military or you know, militarized masculinity rises to the top. So to this is the whole society yeah. under the, the pressure of uh, propaganda, but even by the some of these sort of long delay notions of men belonging to to the into uniforms when there's war going on and this creates uh, created this massive social pressure that basically everybody uh ended up succumbing to so it's either it's, and for some it was really beneficial like young men could right. very well and that's one of the reasons we most armies around the world in all eras, uh, when when you have a volunteer army, it's gonna always gonna be young men. It's not gonna be you know mm-hmm. fathers of families. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and, and, and yeah. I I want to I want to come back to that because there there's a universalizing tendency that I think we you know those of us who who read military history want to get to that there's a, there's a kind of universal manhood. Um, or universal set of qualities, power, respect, whatever it might be. Um, but I, I'm particularly interested in your sample. So could you talk talk about your sample and how you ended up choosing 
the diarists and memory um, memoirists, because I mean, we can go back all the way to Paul Fussell, or maybe we can go back to AJP Taylor, <laughs> yeah. um, right? But it, you have you have a very interesting sampling because out of that sampling, and I think it's mostly in Czech, you you have um, the production of knowledge, the representation of of women, the representation of the duality or fluidity between the home and front. So what, what is it that you're reading? And, and let's say, um, could you describe it? How large is it? And who are these writers? Well, uh, as for the way they were chosen, that's basically, uh, that there's a really practical obstacle doing that kind of research because, but my sort of starting point was, I don't want to really, which maybe may add another dimension to that research. But again, there was no time, no space for that. So, I didn't go into really studying discourse of masculinity, like the social discourse that much. I mm-hmm. sort of relied on secondary literature in that context. And my idea was to really study masculinity in wartime, the way the the individuals uh, experienced that concept. So that's basically studying okay. ma- studying masculinity from below. So my I, I knew from the start that I'm going to be doing research based on diaries, letter collections, and memoirs. And then, of course, it gets complicated because in uh, basically in the Czech Republic, there's no single institution that would actually house uh, these collections uh, written by mm-hmm. by uh, ex-Austro-Hungarian soldiers. That there is literally just there's, there's Military History Institute which houses all the Czechoslovak legionnaires' writings. Basically, right. whatever they right. wrote, whatever they wrote, it's there. Uh, but basically, no one cared. And there's, there's the politics of history in Czechoslovakia and then in Czech, Czech Republic, even today. Uh, but especially during, you know, since 1918 until 1989, uh, that nobody was really interested in uh, those guys who served in the Austro-Hungarian army, even the, even though they were like 90 percent of all servicemen mm-hmm. uh, from Bohemia and Moravia. Uh, so th- basically the sources are all over the place. And uh, it was uh, sort of like the, basically whenever, wherever I looked, there was uh, one collection there, one collection there. I ended up actually using selection of the collections that I found the most uh, uh, useful. But actually I went through like more than 100 collections of, uh, mostly memoirs and diaries. So, uh, many of them actually published or self-published during the interwar years, and then some archival collections that never got into memoirs that never got into actually publication stage, or mm-hmm. letter collections in some regional archives. And uh, since actually since I finalized my primary search for that book, I'm always finding new collections. So uh, since 2015, where I basically finalized the, the basic research, I collected like 50, 50 other. Yeah, <laughs> I, I see you still gathering as as you yeah. go through the book, and and you added a lot from you know between 2016 and 2020, right? Yeah, or and more. Uh, I'm still potentially maybe able to do it in few few next 10 or 20 years but one one thing that sort of emerges through reading those collections that this and this is that 
sort of, I, I don't want to sound, make it sound like there's some kind of universal experience, but of course it tends to be uh, the, the, the story narrative of those collections tend to be sort of quite similar. So there's, I realized that especially in terms of masculinity, many of the topics and the, those topics are covered in those six basic chapters, actually, that I was interested in are sort of in, yeah. be- in between the lines, sometimes uh, said out loud or written out loud. Uh, sometimes right. just one has to really understand the context. But it's very, basically everybody's about many of mentioning these topics in some way. And uh, it's always similar so that uh, really clearly I, I, in the book, I ended up using like 75 of those uh, different types of sources, different types of collections. But uh, even the other ones I didn't didn't use, the, or the, the ones I actually just uh, gathered since then yeah. are still basically showing me the same results. So I could... That, probably deepen the argument with right. the other collections but uh, this is sort of for me this ended up to be the narrowest their narrowest yeah. uh, uh, amount or mass of primary sources of course the biggest problem here is that uh, it's all about the guys who wrote those and uh, right. there, there's huge disparities in terms of the ability of this uh, this sample to represent the the fighting soldiers. So that's yeah, like sixty. What? Yeah, sixty percent of. For example, sixty percent of them were uh, high school educated, which uh, compared to mm-hmm. like five percent of high school educated men in uh, in in the Austrian Empire. The Empire. It's it, uh, it's obvious that there's big difference. But the problem is that finding uh, letters or especially diaries or memoirs, uh, but even letters of those who were not, uh, didn't have the higher education is very complicated. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah could could you talk about yoshi could you talk about how they write about their concerns so i mean you have a section which i think is wonderful on bread warmth and sex so this is this is based on the diary of of yosef Wachal, right the illustrator and, and yeah. sculptor and poet so i mean how are these men especially because they're writing in czech most of them understanding their, let's say, 
sexual identity or under understanding the world of manliness and, and bodily combat, or, you know, I mean, you call it hegemonic masculinity, but there's also very much, as others have pointed out, a feminization of these men, and, and especially those who are writing in letters. So, I mean, my question, I guess, the first one would be, what what are their concerns? Are they the ordinary sort of tropes and concerns, this bread, warmth, and sex? How, how, how do they write about that? Uh, that quote that comes from Yusuf Bakhla is actually a perfect example of the educational bias. This is an educated guy or sort of member of a very specific, in his case, member of an intellectual, the intellectual elite, basically commenting, observing and commenting on his uh, comrades uh, uh, and basically sort of describing them and as very as very simple men with simple needs, uh, mm-hmm. bread, warmth and sex. But uh, in those few cases, actually, where we have uh, collections of letters from uh, men who were, you know, are just primary had primary education peasant background and even if they are actually high school educated that's the way the the military or the war experience actually worked for most of the men especially those who served in in, in, the, in the front line units is that they all end up basically sort of fulfilling the description by Josef Wachel so for mm-hmm. even for the officers and large sample, large part of the sample are reserve officers or reserve officer candidates. They all end up when the situation gets really, really into wartime conditions, they all all end up caring about really basic needs, sort of really just having a shelter, somewhere to lie down, somewhere to rest that would, that would not be, you know, too, uh, too wet and too cold, then they are, they care about food, uh, and then uh, when that sort of this, these basic needs are fulfilled, they all start to care and think and write and uh, yeah. uh, sort of expand their thinking into uh, to cover their sexuality. Of course, this is a really difficult topic because they the way they. Sure. Uh, it, it's not very usual for the to be to be really expressive about one's own sexuality in the early 20th century, even in diaries and uh, in letters. But uh, it really depends. Some some of them are really uh, uh, outspoken in this regard, even in their diaries, and some of them are quite outspoken or using. A very thinly weighed language of sexuality and communications, for example, with their wives uh, mm-hmm. or girlfriends. But most of the time, they end up, uh, uh, they really don't go into describing their own uh, sexual encounters during their service, which obviously there were at least plenty of opportunities because they they end up describing that in other men. So they, they sort of this tendency to uh, not not comment too much on one's own uh, sexual yeah. encounters, but whenever there is an opportunity to describe whatever whatever the others are doing, uh, uh, they do it a lot. And uh, sometimes it's really uh, the, the whole idea seems to be that 
to sort of prove one's own moral high ground that I'm not, you know, using the service of prostitutes and uh, I'm really not uh, succumbing to the threats of or dangerous of homosexual behavior. Uh, but even by commenting on that, they, it's sort of obvious that they very well know what's going on. They very well know what this is going, what this is about. And mm-hmm. uh, so some, with some, in some cases, someone one has this feeling that reading those sections of diaries, for example, that uh, really is that person really describing something they didn't took part in, for example. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm well. I'm really, I'm really intrigued by that because you know there is a stereotype about the the lackluster Czech soldier and Schweik and so forth, right? Um, but what I mean, what do you actually find? Is is there a moment in time in 1915 or 1916 when all energy for combat is lost and 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 people are just exhausted and enervated and spending time writing home. I mean, you know, there are, there's the story of the Brusilov offensive and the failed, um, failed yeah. battles and so forth. So, I mean, there is a narrative, right? And there is maybe even a Czech master national narrative from 1914 to 1918 or, or up to Masaryk and the Republic. I don't know. I mean, are, are you able to, to see some sort of changes over time then in the, the writings that you're studying? Uh, uh, definitely, uh, it's uh, massively different to read a diary uh, of a soldier from 1914, uh, and even there will be a huge difference uh, from uh, from a diary of someone or even the same guy from early 1915. Because 1914 is really sort of like uh, nobody really believes that this is going to happen and this is going to last and. Uh, uh, we're gonna make it through the winter, and the war will be over soon, anyway. So, but then suddenly, this sort of deep depression set, sets in when everybody realizes that this is going to last. Sometimes they 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 literally feel that it's gonna last forever. And but going into like nineteen seventeen, especially nineteen seventeen, nineteen eighteen, where one has the feeling that the situation is really, really horribly difficult in all, all kinds of uh, literally on all uh, areas of, of living in the supply situations miserably economic situation back home is miserable the war is dragging on there is you know no light at the end of the tunnel so it's like but most of the most of them actually end up and I th- don't think that this is really something that specific checks uh, from what what I know, right? Uh, this was a general, you know, feeling in, in among all troops of the Austro-Hungarian army, uh, and among basically all mm-hmm. troops of the First World War. Like this, this crisis of late nineteen seventeen that went through the French armies and the British army, sure. uh, and then then it ended up, you know, almost destroying the German army in nineteen eighteen. It's something that's just a common reaction to that accumulation of uh, massive stress. But with Czechs, it tends to be sort of sort of mm, uh, peppered with this sense of really not being appreciated by by uh, the Austrian Austro-Hungarian state uh, instead of being pushed into this position of uh, 
of uh, the usual suspects, the suspect minorities, they, they use the term, the army mm-hmm. and the army it's, authorities. Itali- Italians or Hungarians, are they treated differently in the literature? I mean, is, is there a tip? Again, I mean, I'm asking yeah. Czech questions, right? And I can't <laughs> no, help I, it. That's not, that's not, not a problem. Right? Because really, these questions really make sense. And they not they are not alone in this. So they, especially Italians and Serbs, of course, uh, are uh, the suspect minorities as well. And uh, uh, Ruthenes uh, as well. But the problem with the Czechs is that, first of all, that they're quite uh, numerous. They're by far the largest suspect minority out there. And uh, so there's literally dozens of regiments with uh, Czech uh, contingents, Czech-speaking contingents. Uh, because the, uh, this is the moment where actually the language, the Czech-speaking term is really uh, necessary because they literally... Uh, many of the the general public, the army, and uh, basically uh, the, their comrades, the officers, pretty often used language as the primary designation of you know political uh, yeah. ad- agenda. So they they automatic because just someone spoke Czech, they ended up very often being automatically placed in the position of uh, being a suspect. Uh, uh, person and being sometimes subject to disciplinary measures that they really didn't think they deserve. Uh, and it's really sort of about perception. I, I didn't really sure. didn't really do any... For me, it wasn't really important if they, these guys deserved it or not. But uh, they, the, the key thing for me was that they mostly didn't think they deserved it and they thought that uh, they should be treated with respect as, you know, again, there's just right. to preserve the basic masculinity, basic ma- concepts of manhood. And they felt they are being uh, uh, sort of betrayed in this context. So for this, and this is the one thing that's quite specific. And one of the few things that's really specifically checked, all the, uh, many of the other things I'm describing in that book could be sort of universally applied to all fighting men in, in modern war, or at least to fighting in the First World War or to Austro-Hungarian soldiers in general. But uh, this is really something specific to Czechs that the perception of bad treatment and on the other hand, perception uh, that they deserve better, that they deserve to be treated as, you know, these... Mm-hmm. Uh, respect. Yeah, uh, with respect as a really civilized man because that this sort of part of Czech... Uh, yeah, Czech national story of Czech nationalism is uh, especially with Czech elites and with educated men, and these are sixty percent of them are quite educated men. Is that they come from the most uh, the most modernized part of Austria, mm-hmm. the West Northwest, which is basically for them every for them everything that's to the east and to the southeast is uh, sort of verging on the Orient. So right. they think they are the most civilized and they should yeah. be treated as civilized men and they feel they are could, not. <laughs> could could you I and and I'm 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 very much persuaded by that but I have I have a question because it you do mention and you have this phrase it's a term you use called the patriarchal dividend. Yeah. So there is a persistence of patriarchy and modern masculinity for these men who are fighting, after all, in the Habsburg 
army. I mean, they, they don't mention the emperor very much, it seems. They, they don't talk about religion very much, although they seem to talk about class. So um, how does this, this dividend, if we can call it that, the persistence of this hegemonic masculinity discourse then proceed through the end of the war, which is really not the end of the war, as we yeah. know from <laughs> studying November of 1918. I mean, how, how does it then, let's say, transition mm. through continuity into, into the Republic and beyond? What, what about it is preserved? Because the, the bodies are damaged. I mean, we're, we're talking about wounds and we're talking about the deflation of that, um, that, that sort of elevated understanding of respect and power. And yeah, it's it's really intriguing question because I, actually it goes into uh, the way these guys actually transitioned from their military service in, in the First World War into the new state Czechoslovakia and becoming later on veterans of the First World War in Czechoslovakia. And I, I my uh, I did some research actually on uh, the returning soldiers and on especially on their remobilization after they came home from the front lines. Uh, tens of thousands of soldiers were remobilized to fight against uh, internal enemies in Czechoslovakia, then against Hungary in 1919. So there was plenty of other conflicts. And those who mm. actually participated in the, these conflicts sort of saw the some of them actually saw the especially from hindsight because they very often used it in their memoirs and in their writings in the 1930s as an argument like uh, this is this really was about and they say it was like that but we cannot be sure that for them they said this was about sort of restoring that patriarchal dividend because they they sort of were all losing it all the time in the First World War, and especially when uh, Austria lost the war, there was no longer even the hope that they would be coming home as heroes and it would be celebrated, at least in the in official way, if, even though I guess that like yeah. 1915, 1916, literally nobody cared about it. But right. uh, suddenly well, they... Would want to remember as Borov, right? Yeah, <laughs> but quick, quickly, quickly forgotten and erased from any commemoration. Yeah, sorry. And, and, yeah, and you're right. And for, as for a commemoration of things like Borov, that was really narrowed down to Czechoslovak legionnaires. But now we're talking about like ten uh, percent, or not even ten percent of the Czech-speaking fighting force. So for the ninety percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, or those who survived, actually, and many of them are uh, one hundred and fifty thousand of them are uh, basically uh, physically or psychologically damaged by war experience. They are listed as war invalids, as the the term uh, of nineteen twenties. So that they are very much that the the patriarchal dividend for them is not attainable. But even and it's really difficult to, how to fit back into into uh, post-war society because they are the constant reminder of you know fighting uh, the war that right. suddenly became a foreign war for a foreign government. And even those who survived with less psychological or physical damage, it's it's really difficult to sort of make this experience work in terms of the way it sort of was 
promised at the beginning that it will become that military masculinity will bring them uh, the hegemonic position in the hierarchy of masculinities and it will bring them patriarchal dividend. But while they, they were sort of enjoying that <laughs> during wartime, yeah. they were losing all kinds of patriarchal dividends. They lost control, they lost power, they didn't have control over anything. They were lo- losing their families sometimes literally through starvation. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they were or for some of them, it was compl- really difficult to just to watch the way their wives were becoming independent uh, because of the situation while they are away uh, in, in the front lines. And suddenly so they come come back home to it, to basically empty-handed from that, exp- uh, from right. that experience. For some of them, uh, joining the Czechoslovak army was the way to restore uh, some of that masculinity, but for most of them, actually, they just wanted to go back to their peacetime life and sort of pull, put all yeah. the threats together as much as they could and uh, forget about the whole thing. Uh, and and uh, this I, is a I'm, silent majority, I would say, actually. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm really curious about that because you've got a chapter on on home, and of course, you know, there, there's no better gendered concept than home. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, Heimat Front, and and you know, I mean, I'm thinking of the the work of, of Maureen Healy yeah. and and Nancy Wingfield, and the more recent work. I mean, Mark Corn, Cornwall, for example, or Krista Hammerle. Could could you maybe talk about how the the concept of home is then changed by is it changed by all of these letter writers in in a kind of epistolary form do they have do they have influence in in Czechoslovak society through veterans organizations or anything like that after 1918 19 um, and, and you know what is there a change let's say in what what home is called uh, yeah uh- it's there's even change during during the war itself. Of course, and you're right that the concept of home is probably the most it's the most important for for the soldiers, and it's the like for many of them actually, and they describe it as the the kind of beacon that makes them able to survive the experience. So they. Uh, on one level, they are sort of in their minds preserving the the ideal ideal image of home and what it should be, which usually uh, is the pre-war or pre, pre-conscription uh, situation they remember uh, with their families intact, with the economic situation not as bad or uh, their, uh, their, uh, and every, everything's basically uh, right. based on the traditional patriarchal framework. It's, it's, Sorry, it's a, it's yeah. also sort of pre-feminist, isn't it? I mean, what what happens to all the homosocial relationships and the homoeroticism that they experience through comradeship? It, it, they just not talking about it, or is it not having influence? Or I mean, how would you describe that? Uh, yeah, and yeah, and they because they don't have that idealized home, uh, they sort of end up uh, and and they live together close quarters with uh, dozens of other men, sometimes really physically close. And uh, they share things that they would probably not even share uh, at home because 
suddenly they are uh, they are facing immense emotional stress, especially fear, and the, this these really stressful situations make makes plenty of the men, and they they tend to mention it. They they don't dwell too mm-hmm. too much on it, but they mention it that right. everybody's afraid and uh, everybody tends to cry from time to time. And that's the moment they turn to other men. So that, that, that they, when they actually mention some kind of emotional outbursts and really moments of uh, emo- emotional need, they uh, uh, always frame it in the concept they call a uh, sort of frontline or military comradeship. Because that, that's, mm-hmm. and basically saying this is allowed to behave like that, which is not really traditionally manly. We wouldn't do it at home. We wouldn't do it in front of our wives. We didn't we do it there. But uh, this is allowed because the situation is uh, that bad. But especially because we are sharing that with our comrades who are some something really special. So they sort of construct uh, construct the whole notion of wartime comradeship into something that makes that allows them to exist outside of the traditional frameworks of masculinity uh, that allows them and, and at the same time yeah. allows sort of them uh, allows the emotion, emotional survival because otherwise mm-hmm. they would have a really hard time coping with the, uh, right. the, the stress of combat and uh, uh, starvation yeah. and you know, all kinds of uh, things that they have to face and of course they and back to your question about uh, the the way they remember it and in toward period they they come home to uh, and most of them are relieved to be back with their families to start their own lives again and, but it's sort it's sort of restart and especially uh, through my own research that I did on veterans. And uh, that's not part of the book, actually, uh, because it didn't fit at the end. But uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. the problem, if the, if the situation with the sources for wartime is not ideal uh, for the yeah. situation in interwar period is just bad because... I see really that. The, you the had source, to end it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the sources are not there too much but from what we have like especially uh veterans associations uh journals and uh, all kinds of magazines they published and that they were there were veterans associations from the of the old regiments or austrian regiments set up during late 1920s and especially during the great depression in early 1930s when okay. they, they sort of started to you know associate most of most of the time because of mutual support uh, right. And uh, out of that uh, emerged this sort of movement that tried to re- reintegrate the memory of these soldiers who served in the Austro-Hungarian army uh, right. during the war. They tried to sort of reintegrate their own past into the mainstream uh, mainstream national memory that was that's always that was always based on the Czechoslovak Legion uh, yeah. uh, mythology. But they were not really successful because they had a hard, really hard time, you know, how to make it work. Uh, and, sure. And, and, and it, after all, these are still, sorry, these are still Czech-speaking men who yeah. in public are being accused of disloyalty or outright treason. 
So it's not as though there's a free reign to self-expression in the society during the interwar period, right? Well, they, they are not uh, accused of that because that would be really difficult. It's, we're talking about like 800,000 men, uh, so out of, mm-hmm. out of 6 million, uh, so uh, 6 million population. Czech speaking, yeah. so that they, it was certainly not possible, but very. And you mentioned that actually, the 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 way to do this uh, in post-war society was to adopt the the image of uh, of the Czech slacker of of Schweik, basically. So especially mm-hmm. in 1920s, when the good soldier Schweik the, the novel came out. And uh, German-speaking audience in Germany and even Bohemia and Austria sort of very quickly identified the, the main character or many of the characters actually in the book as well. This is this is this is it. This is the, the way Czech, Czechs did it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, as if it was fact for everyone who was participating. Yeah, right? and and suddenly, sort of Czech-speaking uh, population of Czechoslovakia. Realized, or not consciously, of course, but it seems that since like mid nineteen twenties, when the novel got really popular, uh, they the this became the the way how to explain Czech participation in war. So they like very very often and very publicly that there's this theory put forward that well they were all fakes. They were basically just this subversive element. They never and this is the you know the traditional interpretation. They, even during the war, uh, German nationalists and Czech nationalists, though German nationalists in Austria and Czech Czech nationalists in exile, agreed yeah. on, agreed on one thing: that Czech soldiers in Austro-Hungarian army are traitors. But for right. of course, for Czech nationalists, this was a positive thing. For German nationalists, it was yeah. a, it was a negative and, thing. But and 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 I I mean I see that also in the academic literature. I mentioned A. J. P. Taylor, right? Yeah. So it, do you do you see this kind of feminized image of the Czech soldier? I don't know if it's correct to call it a feminized image, but do, at least something a, a different kind of perspective. Does that persist for for a long time through the twenties and thirties and beyond? Uh, oh yeah, it does. I wouldn't call it feminized. I I, I would say maybe uh, uh, un. Unmanned, <laughs> if I can use okay. that word. Non non masculine. Non masculine. Yeah. Uh, it's especially if we uh, look at it through the perspe- uh, from the perspective of military militarized masculinity. Uh, if we just use the the picture of wartime militarized masculinity, and uh, it was even in wartime. This this and this is the part of the public perception by. That was pushed forward by German nationalists and from Czechoslovak nationalists from abroad, that they are mm-hmm. miserable soldiers, and and uh, so the army actually was suspecting them of it. So they it was actually trying to discipline them in a way that saw fit, and it really made them angry. So it made them miserable soldiers at the end. Yeah. And uh, this is something that carries over into the interwar period because suddenly it seems like everybody agrees on that. Even right. though, even those guys for, for a while, uh, especially nineteen twenties, they sort of silently accept those who can, those who actually care. I, I'd say like eighty percent, ninety percent of them just didn't care about 
anything is they wanted just to forget the war. But in 1930s, when these associations formed throughout the Great Depression and they start to rethink their past and their the the way how to commemorate the past, uh, actually many of those who are sort of active in that commemoration suddenly start to be critical of that Schweik yeah. image. So, and then from the point of view of masculinity, actually, so they say, well, I don't want to be demasculinized, unmanned by being right. seen as a traitor because I fought to my, you know, best abilities. I, I uh, suffered for something I yeah. really did, didn't really believe in, but I did my duty and now I'm being called a traitor they they didn't like that really, but sure, I would say that and, no, we actually don't know how many felt that way because of the lack of sources. Yeah, and that's really my last question for you, Yerji, because I I know we're winding down with our time. Yeah. I wondered if you if you could recommend some other work in gender and war. We we've mentioned Nancy Wingfield and and Maureen Hurley, uh, Maureen Healy. Um, so it, could you? Maybe talk about that a little bit and what yeah. your current research and projects are about. Yeah, uh, if we, we are talking about uh, Czech soldiers, and uh, I would really recommend, but I'm actually not sure if it was published in English, uh, but there's uh, Richard Lyons' uh, book on specifically on certain cases of uh, Czech soldiers deserting uh, on the Eastern Front. Mm. Uh, Interesting. Book, and, and it basically follows the... Uh, from a military point of view, it follows the uh, the moments, the, the events that took place on the spring of 1915, and then it follows the you know the investigation and the trials that went on during the war, and sort of uh, this uh, uncovers the whole context, which is really is really fascinating the way uh, it was basically. Uh, used for political uh, for political purposes by the military authorities and by then by Czechs themselves by by Germans by German nationalists so this is really uh, it's called uh, bit I think the English translation would be uh, fulfilling of duty or betrayal uh, it's been translated in Czech. I, I think, uh, but the okay. original publication is uh, is uh, is in German. Okay. Um, and you mentioned, and, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And in yeah. one minute or two, what what are you working on now? <laughs> okay, sorry, I, I got stuck on that. <laughs> uh, I'm working. Uh, I did some uh, research on veterans, but sort of got stuck on lack of sources, as I mentioned, uh, and so that I tried to follow the path of gender, uh, uh, analyzing gender gender identity of veterans. But uh, currently, it's uh, the situation around the source is not quite difficult. It's quite difficult. So my current project, I sort of moved on for a while and try, I, I'm going to leave the soldiers uh, to rest for a while. And uh, I'm preparing a project on uh, wartime uh, sort of total history of urban community in wartime uh, using the uh, case of my home uh, hometown of Olomouc, which was okay. a really quite important garrison town with uh, German and Czech 
large in German, a large Czech-speaking population. Uh, basically, uh, transportation hub going to the eastern front on the on the very edge of the military zone when the front lines got into uh, deep into Galicia. So it may yield really interesting conclusions, sort of inspired, taking inspiration from Maureen Healy's uh, research on Vienna and others' researches mm-hmm. around Aust- Austrian Empire. But Olomouc is a really interesting case because it's not, a, it's not a really small town. It's a larger town with a huge yeah. military presence, so civil military relations and that dynamics. And of course, gender could be very well, very well, really important in, in the way war influenced uh, the way the population actually moved through uh, through through the war and then in in the transition into Czechoslovakia as you mentioned yeah. the war, war didn't end here in 1918 so there's still military transports going through Olomouc in until late 1919 to f- defend Slovakia so great I, I, I want to thank you, Yerji, for joining us today. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and uh, this book is out in the series at Bergon Books called Austrian and Habsburg Studies. Uh, the book by Professor Yerji Hutechka is called Men Under Fire, Motivation, Morale, and Masculinity Among Czech Soldiers in the Great War, 1914 to 1918, Bergon Books 2020. It's, it's a fascinating book. It is really important to study, I think, this topic, soldiers, not just as Czechs, but soldiers as soldiers and soldiers as men. Um, and certainly Professor Hutechka has done that. So, Yershi, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, thank, thanks a lot for having me here. And uh, it was my pleasure. And I, I, was, uh, I hope that uh, the listeners found it, found it interesting, too. So thanks a lot. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.